Highway Hi-Fi podcast where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history using research, trivia, and falsities to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. And congratulations. You've reached the internet's finest location for music, conspiracies, and curses. But before we get into all that, let's warm you up with a little bit of trivia. Alright, I'm going to start today. Joe, I have a uh, different sort of quiz for you today. Um, this one is called like a Rolling Stone list. And here's what I did. I took the top 20 punk albums as named by Rolling Stone magazine. Okay. Okay, top 20. Okay. Your job is to list as many bands as possible on that list. Okay? So you're going to just start naming bands that you think have an album on the top 20 list by Rolling Stones. When was this list made? Uh, I don't know. None of the albums are after the 90s. Okay. Okay. Here, I got a couple caveats just to help you. Okay. One is that there's only one album per band. Okay. So you wouldn't have yep. to name if you if there's o- there's only one album per band. Okay. Um, the other thing is I'm going to give you a couple clues to help you out. All right, a couple clues to help you out. Okay. So here are your clues. Okay. I'm going to give you a chronological clue and a regional clue. All right. The chronological clue is that there's three albums from the early '70s. Eight albums from the 70s, late 70s, six albums from the 80s, and three albums from the 90s. Just to kind of Oh, so there are albums from the 90s. Yep. Okay. There's a breakdown. There's three from the 90s, six from the 80s, eight from 76 on, and three from 75 or earlier. Okay. Here's the other clue. Just to kind of help give you a, a little bit of a frame of reference, I'm going to give you the geographic breakdown of where the albums, where the bands who made the albums are from. There's six from England. Five from the East Coast, seven from the West Coast, and two from the Midwest. Okay. So I don't know if that helps you or just confuses Okay. Me. How many wrong ones am I allowed to get before you have to thinking, stop this I was quiz. thinking three. Three strikes okay. and you're out. Um, one's a compilation, too, which I think it's fair to tell you. Okay. 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 Uh, All right. And, uh, yep. Uh, and are you going to keep track of I'm what I have? I'm going to keep track, yep. All right. I'm going to start with the Sex Pistols. Yes. I'm going to go with the Stooges. Yes. I will go with the Dead Kennedys. Incorrect. Really? No Dead Kennedys. What the fuck kind of list is this? Okay. Ramones? Yes. The Damned? No. Are you kidding me? No. The Clash? Of course. Yeah. yeah. Got five. Okay. And you've got the... I've top. only got one got X top. left. They've got the top four. What are the top four? What order? Ramones, Clash, Sex Pistols, Stooges. Um, Minor Threat? No. I'm out. A terrible list. Yes. Bad Brains? Yes. Oh, on man. There. Wow. Yep. Okay. You, there's some who are going to make you cringe. Okay. You got Ramones. Green Day. Yes. You got Green Day. You, all you had to say was cringe. I'm trying well, to think of other bands. The biggest like punk bands album I don't from like. the 90 that Rolling Stone would call punk. Edie Brickell. <laughs> nope. All right. I'm going to read the list Okay, now. go. Okay. Nirvana. Nirvana. <laughs> are you kidding me? No. Uh, uh, it's, a, it's a bad list. Okay. Uh, that's part of the okay. reason I asked it. But okay. Ramones, Ramones, Clash, Clash, Sex Pistol, Nevermind the Bullocks, Stooges, Funhouse. You got all those. Mm-hmm. Gang of Four, Entertainment. Oh, Gang of Four makes sense. Okay. That's fine. Wire, Pink Flag. I was going to say Wire. I thought they wouldn't count them as. Uh, but, I mean, 
It's, as far as I'm it, concerned, it, it seems strange for that to be. Uh, we both love that album. Yep, but it yep, seems yep. like the Rolling Stone would not. Then um, Elvis Costello would be on there then too, or Television. Uh, television is yes. Okay. Minutemen, Double Nickels. Oh, good uh, one. Black Cloud, Damaged. X, Los Angeles, Nirvana, Nevermind, which doesn't belong. I agree. Buzzcocks, single going, singles going steady, which was. The but if the Buzzcocks are there, then the Dam should be there. I agree. Okay. Patty Smith Horses, which again is a bit That's of a, a stretch. Poetess. Mr. <laughs> Do's and Arcade. <laughs> All right, Sleater Kinney, Dig Me Out. Not punk. But I, I mean, I love and don't. I hope nobody com- gets upset. This I really one. love that album. Yeah, 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 yeah. New York Dolls, New York Dolls. This is the one where I think you're not gonna be happy. Uh, the Descendants, Milo goes to college. Oh, that's fine. I'm fine with that actually. As a top twenty. Now, um, well, I mean, more with, than the Dead Kennedys. I think minor it's, threat. It's better than I thought it would be when you said I was really gonna cringe. Okay, good. Aim high, shoot low. Uh, television, Marky Moon. You got yeah, Green yeah. Day. You got Bad Brains. You got. The last one was X-Ray Specs, Stern Free Animals. Oh, that's a good one. I just yeah. never would have thought of them as top They're all 20. okay albums, yep. but only about 10 of them are I mean, you might albums. as well put Fugazi in there. Yeah. Another great band. And, and I but... think it was a top 50 list, but I just took the top 20. Or, what's that first Steve Albini band? Uh, Big Black? Were they yeah. in? They weren't in there. Oh, no, you didn't know. I don't know. They I mean, might be the top 50. Black Flag makes a lot of sense. and that's, Black Flag. I think that's where I was... Going up. minor them and minor threat. I always get them confused. I was hoping that the West different. Coast one, like seeing how many there were from the West Coast, might help you out. But of course, if you take away Sleater, Kenny, Nirvana, it, ones that you would yeah, are X, great albums, but yeah. you know you wouldn't think of X makes a ton of sense. Okay, um, sorry, that was an experimental quiz. And wow, I am not ever reading a Rolling Stone again, which hasn't bothered <laughs> me for that ten, whole quiz was just to show you that Rolling Stone does not know what punk music is. Wow. Okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right, I'm going to go ahead and do my audio quiz, and this is going to be getting even. This is my revenge. This quiz is all about samples. I'm going to play five clips, and I, you do not need to name the artist or the song uh, from the clip that I'm playing, though that would be awesome if you did. But I, what I want is the song that is being sampled in the clip. And sometimes there's more than one, so if you know multiple, great. Send us an email. I'm looking for one specific one, but if you know more, you can you can tell us and uh, tell me I missed something. Okay, here we go. Clip one. Left my wallet in El Segundo. I gotta get it. I got got to get it. I left my wallet in El Segundo. Left my wallet in El Segundo. Left my wallet in El Segundo. I gotta get it. Two. Three. Story to tell you. Have you ever met a girl that you tried to date? But a year to make love, she wanted you to wait. Let me tell you a story in my situation. I was talking to this girl from the U.S. nation. Four. Come on. Five. Just like a paper tiger. Okay, some of those are hard to hear. If you, What you should probably do is go get your headphones on and try it again. It's much easier to hear. I think especially with that number five one. What, how do you think you did on that? Not too good. Perfect. All right. Um, it's time for Turntable Talk. Everybody is talking at me. I don't hear a word they're saying. 
Only the echoes of my mind. What if Joe and I were to tell you that there was a single band you may never have heard of who co-wrote Sgt. Pepper with the Beatles? He's responsible for Dylan going electric. He pushed Brian Wilson over the edge, borrowed Frank Sinatra's Learjet, let down his childhood idol Elvis Presley, and had Thanksgiving with the band at Big Pink. He conjured a curse that would lead several of the world's brightest musicians to early deaths and was assassinated just as he was about to reveal the truth about the most famous cover-up in rock and roll history. Today, the fantastic and tragic tale of rock and roll's greatest conspiracy victim, Mal Evans, a man who just happened to be around rock's biggest star and ultimately fell into the buzzsaw that was Paul McCartney's vengeance. A bit of backstory, Joe and I started throwing around ideas of creating a turntable talk while we were both together for the weekend. Eventually, one of us remembered the story of the apartment where two rock stars died years apart. More on that in a bit. A bit of internet sleuthing leads us to something called the Curse of Harry Nielsen, which posits that the ruby-throated pianist was fated to be surrounded by misfortune and unnatural death. This is true. However, as we dug deeper, we found someone with an even stronger connection to all the Nielsen-linked death and destruction. In fact, a connection to all sorts of weirdness, drugs, murder, conspiracy, and mail fraud. Seeming to only exist in the shadows of legends, Mal Evans was the man who knew too much. Aware of what was going on, he kept a personal diary detailing records about secrets only he was privy to, which could bring down the one man that was bigger than Jesus. Mal would ultimately pay dearly for being in the right place at the wrong time, and the wrong place at the right time. Little is known about the youth of Mal Evans. But what is known is that by the time he grew up, he was a bear of a man. He was over six feet, six inches, and 250 pounds. He wore thick-rimmed glasses, and he had a vapid, yet lovable smile. He was constantly enamored with rock and roll, particularly having an unhealthy obsession with its king, Elvis Presley. Though he wanted to remain singularly devoted to Elvis, his attentions were split as soon as he heard a catchy pop group during his lunch break while they played marathon sessions at the Cavern Club. He was smitten. He would spend hours watching his fellow Liverpudlians bang out tunes and decided that these boys were destined for greatness. He eventually struck up a friendship with the quiet one, a kid named George, and George would eventually put in a good word for the big fella with the Cavern Club's manager, Ray McFall, who hired him as a doorman. Despite his sweet personality, he excelled at his duties, bouncing unruly guests, with mostly just his formidable presence. In August of 1963, the Beatles saw potential in this gentle giant, understanding that a man of his stature and with his loyalty could be molded into a perfect roadie. He was hired as a bodyguard, roadie, personal assistant, and general gopher. He would drive the boys to shows, carry and test equipment, sign fake autographs, and run out to get anything that the band desired, boots or suits, underwear, Wigs, meals, cigarettes, drinks, and eventually, drugs. Mal Evans had the unenviable task of keeping back hordes of screaming fans. He did his job well, even electing to drive an Austin Princess limousine because it had the largest door opening width in case the Fab Four needed to jump in the car to escape a horde of screaming fans. Have you seen A Hard Day's Night? Or really, any Benny Hill? As trust between the man and the band grew... They let Big Mal into their inner circle, exploiting his undying allegiance and relative naivete. 
Mal Evans was there to see the boys experience cannabis for the first time in 1964 with a prominent American folkie named Bob Dylan. Paul McCartney recalls this encounter and his unusual request, I discovered the meaning of life and I suddenly felt like a reporter. On behalf of my local newspaper in Liverpool, I wanted to tell my people what it was. I was the great discoverer on the Sea of Pot in New York City. I was sailing the sea and I had discovered it. I remember asking Mal, our road manager, for what seemed like years and years. Have you got a pencil? But of course, everyone was so stoned. They couldn't produce a pencil, let alone a combination of a pencil and paper. So it was either I had the pencil, but I didn't have the paper, or I had the... Uh, I eventually found it, and I wrote it down and gave it to Mal for safekeeping. I had been going through this thing of levels during the evening, and at each level I'd meet all these people again. Oh, it's you! And then I'd metamorphose onto another level. Anyway, Mal gave me this little slip of paper in the morning and written on it was... There are seven levels. Legend is that Mal was a key player in encouraging both the band to expand their mind and in asking Dylan why he doesn't do more Beatles-style rock music. Mal went as far as to awkwardly suggest that Dylan wear more leather. By 1965, Dylan had picked up a plugged-in Stratocaster guitar at the Newport Folk Festival, sporting an all-black leather outfit, And the Beatles, at the same time, released a song as a B-side called Day Tripper, which most claim is the first Beatles song to contain a drug reference. Drugs would be a regular part of the Beatles' regime from that point on, and Mal Evans was the only way the Beatles could score and keep their squeaky clean image. He would stay straight and try to handle the boys during one of their first LSD trips, an event that inspired Lennon to write She Said, She Said, but Mal becoming more and more involved in the Beatles' personal affairs. He accompanied them everywhere, including America. Though the band still saw him as a loyal servant, he saw them as brothers. He would swim with them, go out with them, get stoned and trashed with them. He was lovable and fun and would take care of them, no questions asked. He traveled with the band, once in the Philippines after the band unwittingly offended the nation's first lady and lost their government protection. Mal took charge and led a daring escape to the airport after facing constant assaults from wild fans. The boys survived, but he had suffered a severe concussion. He also accompanied Paul on a safari in Kenya in 68. On the way back, Paul and Mal were enjoying an in-flight meal. Mal innocently asked, What's the S&P packets for? Paul answered, Salt and pepper, you lummox. And a light bulb went off in Paul McCartney's head. It was at that moment the idea for Sgt. Pepper planted itself in his brain. Now this event, which seems innocuous and lighthearted, would be the roots of a relationship of collaboration that would eventually sour to potentially deadly results. This, according to many, was the very last time that Paul and Mal would be together. In January 67, Paul McCartney may or may not have died in a car accident. He did. Conspiracy theories abound, but if there's one man who knew the truth, it was Mal Evans. Mal had an unfeathered access to Paul during this time, and shortly after the alleged but absolutely real fatal car crash, moved in as a housekeeper to and a handler of Paul. He accompanied Paul on a trip to the U.S. to see Paul's girlfriend, Jane Asher. It had been said that the bodyguard traveled on this romantic getaway to make sure that Asher did not out the imposter. 
On this trip, Frank Sinatra, who may have procured the Paul double through his dubious connections, allowed Paul and Mal to use his private Learjet to go to a party in L.A. with John Phillips and Cass Elliot. The Cass Elliot bond would lead to a strange circumstance in the near future. Also at this party, Evan spent time with Brian Wilson, who was working on the Smile Sessions. McCartney and Wilson partied and sang silly songs together like On Top of Old Smokey. Mal was not impressed with Wilson or his avant-garde tendencies. At one point, Evans, unintentionally or not, alluded to the fact that Pet Sounds was a magnificent album that had some production flaws. He told Brian that he may want to see if George Martin could help him out with his new musical venture. Apparently, this sent Wilson into a frenzy of self-doubt and substance abuse. The Smile album was abandoned. Mal and Paul were an unstoppable force and spent nearly every day together. Mal, potentially holding a secret that could bring down the Beatles, showed amazing loyalty to the band. In fact, he would help this new character find his voice and even, according to his own diaries, co-wrote some of the songs on Sgt. Pepper. This is from Mal's diary, dated January 27, 1967. Sgt. Pepper started writing song with Paul upstairs in his room. He on piano. Did a lot more of where the rain comes in. Hope people like it. And this is from February 1, 1967, just a few days, days later. Sergeant Pepper sounds good. Paul tells me that I will get royalties on the song. Great news. Now perhaps a new home. And then from the next day, diary entry dated February 2nd, 1967. Recording voices on Captain Pepper. All six of us doing the chorus in the middle. Worked until about midnight. He and Paul would have candid conversations about how he was contributing as a silent partner. A tape recording of Evans and author Keith Badman speaking shortly before Evans' death, on which Evans reiterated some of the statements made in his, in his diary. According to Badman, Evans was asked if it would be a problem that he was not credited, as the Lennon-McCartney writing name was a really hot item. Evans never received any royalties and stayed at his measly 38-pound-a-week pay. He watched Sgt. Pepper become one of the greatest rock and roll albums of all time, with his contributions being completely swept under the rug. Secretly, Evans's fingerprints were all over a myriad of Beatles tracks. A voice in the chorus on Yellow Submarine, a tambourine in Dear Prudence, an organ on You Won't See Me, harmonica on Being for the Benefit of Mr. Kite, an anvil on Maxwell's Silver Hammer, hammer, though that was edited out. And, in a dark note, he played the wailing trumpet solo on a Charles Manson favorite, Helter Skelter. Perhaps, most famously, Evans was in charge of the alarm clock during the crescendo of a day in the life. The alarm clock was brought in by John as a sort of a joke at the expense of Ringo, who apparently had trouble staying awake for the sessions. When Lennon passed the clock to Mal with specific instructions for the song, Mal took that clock back to his room and he studied his part like he was taking the bar exam. He slept with it, he ate with it, he brushed his teeth with it. He knew his role and wouldn't let his friends down. Mal was in charge of counting the measures in the original 24-bar pause, even though he had trouble counting to 24. Mal Evans was always at the studio, first one there, last one to leave, he saw everything and became more entangled in the secrets of the Beatles. 
He would continue to have amazing encounters with the who's who in 60s rock and roll. He had Thanksgiving dinner with Harrison Dillon and the band at the Big Pink House. November 28, 1968. Up at 10.30 into Woodstock to Bob for Thanksgiving. Met level of the band. He is drummer plays guitar. Around the table after turkey, cranberry sauce, etc. And also pecan pie. Bob, George, Rich, Happy, Leveler, around the guitars while many children play. Sarah Great, turkey sandwich and beer, to Richard and Garth's home for farm sessions. Home to bed. Though many experiences were wonderful and amazing, the Mop Tops often treated Mal Evans as their personal slave and had no problem making him embarrass himself for their own whims, comforts, and kicks. George recounts a tale from Amsterdam, where the guys were boating along, waving at the crowd. They spotted a fan wearing an ultra-groovy coat and immediately demanded Mal get it for them, a la Violet Beauregard and Willy Wonka. Without hesitation, he jumped into the water, swam towards the coat, leaving the view of the Fab Four completely as they continued along. Three hours later, a soaking wet Mal returned with the beautiful multicolored cloak. Earlier in 1965, the Beatles and Elvis finally brought together two worlds. Mal was enthralled to shake the hand of his hero. McCartney spoiled the experience when Elvis asked if anyone had a guitar pick. McCartney quipped, Yeah, Mal's got a pick. He always got a pick. He carries them around on holiday. Which was usually true. But because Mal was currently dressed to the nines for meeting his hero, Elvis, he didn't have a single pick on him for the king. He ran to the kitchen and unsuccessfully attempted to fashion a pick by breaking plastic spoons as tears streamed down his quivering face. He was haunted by the experience, later stating, That was a disappointment. I'd have loved to have given Elvis a pick, have him play it, then got it back and had it framed. In their movies, Mal was always cast as a simpleton in non-speaking roles. A confused hapless magician. A confused channel swimmer. A confused roadie. The band made him responsible for finding Ringo Starr, a personal doctor, during the trip to India to see the Maharishi. He spent hours in a country he knew nothing about because Ringo was worried about some incontinence and bloating from his inoculations. He was also responsible for preparing Ringo's baked beans, since Starr refused to eat the Indian food at all. That was just the guy he was, loyal to the bone and to a fault. Mal never complained, despite the thankless hours and nominal pay. He loved the band but he needed to make his own name. In 1968, Mal made his own waves, though, when he saw a talented group called the Ivies. This band, which soon became known as Badfinger, was signed by Apple Records at Evans' insistence. He would go on to produce many of the early tracks, including No Matter What, but, as it turns out, despite being around many of the best studio minds of his generation, he was not a very good producer. Thus began the beginning of the end for Badfinger, right from the get-go, and would set into motion a series of unfortunate musical and business decisions that would ultimately lead to the suicide of two bands founding songwriters and two more dead feathers in Mal's cap. This is part of the curse that is attributed to Harry Nilsson, but in reality, Nilsson only did them a favor by making one of their songs without you an international hit. Mal Evans, unwittingly, was the real downfall of Badfinger. But the ties to tragedy don't stop there. The only other notable production job for Evans was on Keith Moon's only solo album, the ill-fated 
two sides of the moon. Though Evans wasn't given very much to work with, his production skills were rudimentary at best, and he was fired very quickly for his incompetence and for spilling tang on the soundboard. Twice. Both Moon and Evans would be devastated by their failure, and it would follow them to their quickly approaching deaths. Another component of the supposed Nielsen curves involves a flat that he owned in London. Flat number 12 at 9 Curzon Square in Mayfair. This is the apartment where both Mama Cass Elliot died of a heart attack in her sleep in July of 1974, and Keith Moon would overdose by taking 32 powerful sedatives in September of 1978. Moon the Loon had a direct tie with Evans, and Mama Cass, as mentioned earlier, partied with Mal and the boys on multiple occasions. Again, Mal seemed much closer to responsibility for the supposed curse than Harry Nelson could have been. Two side notes. The whole Mama Cass and Hand Sandwich thing turns out to be totally untrue. It's a myth. And the flat was sold by Nilsson and disturbingly purchased by Moon's bandmate, Pete Townsend, who was apparently immune to the curse's power. As the Beatles disintegrated and the band was reaching its twilight, Mal Evans became more withdrawn and despondent. He was broke and upset that the band he had invested half his life into was coming apart at the seams, though he was still very much involved in the personal affairs of the band, including being one of five people at McCartney's wedding to Linda Eastman. He still just acted as a gopher in their stooge. He was demoted at Apple Records and writes in his diary about being upset with his deteriorating financial situation. I feel very hurt and sad inside. Only big boys don't cry. Why I should feel hurt and reason for writing this is ego. I thought I was different from other people in my relationship with the Beatles and being loved by them and treated so nice. I felt like one of the family. Seems I fetch and I carry. I find it difficult to live on 38 pounds that I take home each week and would love to be like their other friends who buy fantastic homes and have all the alterations done by them and are still going to ask for a rise. I always tell myself, look, everybody wants to take from, be satisfied, try to give, and you will receive. After all this time, I have about seven zero pounds to my name, but was content and happy. Loving them as I do, nothing is too much trouble because I want to serve them. Feel a bit better now. Ego! Despite all this, he never asked for a raise since the band was having such a hard time. Though not everyone saw Evans as an asset to the band, Alan Klein was brought up to clean up Apple Records. One of his first moves was firing Evans and other longtime and incredibly loyal Beatles assistant, Neil Aspinall. Lennon seemed okay with the moves, but Starr, Harrison, and McCartney resisted and complained. Perhaps they knew that 38 pounds a week was an acceptable fee for a man who had locked away so many vital secrets and whose loyalty was unquestioned. After the Beatles breakup, Mal was listless, poor, and as always, still confused. He continued to be a hanger-on and supporter, receiving credit for various things on several of the early solo records, including Plastic Ono Band, All Things Must Pass, and Ringo. His depression and status as a pauper led to a separation from his wife in 1973 and he moved to Los Angeles where Lennon was living with May Pang after his own separation from Yoko. There, he was a crucial instigator in the Lost Weekend period when John and Harry Nilsson tore up Los Angeles with drunken, crazy antics 
including getting into a car wreck, being escorted from record label offices, and being kicked out of the troubadour for heckling the Smothers Brothers, and for even for brawling. Evans was there as a drinking buddy for Nelson and Lennon, someone they trusted, who understood, who wouldn't judge, and who knew how to keep his trap shut. In all the craziness, Mal had begun developing his own substance abuse problems, drinking and shoveling cocaine into his gaping maw regularly. Mal Evans was defeated. His friends slash employers seemed to be neither, and he started talking more about his time with the Beatles and what he knew. He'd give interviews, let little snippets of information out, and hint at the vast amount of papers and artifacts he kept from his time with the Beatles. He even started working on his memoirs, Living the Beatles Legend, which he was to have delivered to his publishers on January 12, 1976, and based on his diary entries, it was going to be something to read for sure. Many think that it was this action that would lead to the strange circumstances of his death. Were the former Beatles concerned about what he might leak in his book, or no doubt impending tour once it had been published? Someone who was unstable, poor, and messed up could no longer be counted on to keep secrets. It was clearly time for them to cut bait. On the night of January 5, 1976, at the home of his girlfriend, Fran Hughes, Mal Evans began arguing with his writing collaborator, John Herney. The fight got so heated that Evans, already messed up on Valium and liquor, picked up an unloaded air rifle and started threatening the ghostwriter. A struggle ensued, but Herney was unable to wrest the weapon away from the big galoot. Ernie escaped, and Evans' girlfriend, seeing the fight, had phoned the LAPD, telling them that her boyfriend was on downers and had a shotgun. The police burst upstairs and claimed that Evans refused to drop his weapon. They shot at the lumbering giant six times with four of the bullets hitting Evans, and he was dead on the spot. The Los Angeles Times referred to Mal Evans as a jobless former road manager for the Beatles. And that was about how he was seen by the band. He had given so much to and whose secrets he had kept so well. Evans was cremated on January 7, 1976, despite his family's protestations. None of the former Beatles attended that funeral. Was their squabbling really so bad that they couldn't be in the same place for even the length of a funeral? Or were they guilt-addled about the murder that they had set into motion? Only Harry Nielsen and a small handful of friends were in attendance at his funeral. The Beatles were also reluctant to help with the family of Evans, with only George Harrison arranging for them to receive 5,000 pounds, as Evans had not maintained his life insurance premiums and were not entitled to a pension. Uh, 5,000 pounds is a pittance for the one of the world's biggest rock stars. The story doesn't end here, though. Harry Nielsen had volunteered to send Evans' ashes and personal effects back to England, one of the most important items was a trunk containing Mal's personal diaries, recordings, pictures, papers, and vast amounts of Beatles collectibles and personal information. No one knows exactly what was in the trunk at the time of Evans' death because Nielsen, intentionally or unintentionally, bungled the shipping job, a bungling that Mal himself would have been proud of. The trunk turned up, somehow, in the basement of a New York City publisher a decade later, most likely already trifled through. Evans' ashes were lost completely, supposedly by the postal system. Upon learning of the lost remains of Mal Evans, a man who had worked for him and been a loyal friend for years, John Lennon reportedly smirked and said, They should look in the dead letter file. 
allowing Nielsen, who himself was notoriously unreliable and wasted, to take care of a job as important as sending ashes seems like an interesting choice. Nielsen claims that the shooting death of Mal Evans and the 1980 assassination of Lennon would have a profound impact on him. He would later become a gun control advocate and try to raise money for the cause. However, he would never find the musical creativity or success he once had after the death of Mal Evans. Uh, not counting the Popeye soundtrack, obviously. The downfall started in the late 70s and was accelerated by financial problems and substance abuse issues in the 80s and his death from heart failure at the young age of 52. Was it Harry Nielsen's own personal curse? Or was it the curse of a man to whom he did wrong just to appease the band that he so desperately wanted to be a part of? Or was Nielsen just another loose end in the McCartney Mafia that needed to silence? Interestingly enough, it was Yoko Ono who arranged and paid for the, trunk, the found trunk to be returned to Mao's family. The artifacts contained within were worth a fortune. For example, Lennon's original pages of the lyrics to A Day in the Life were sold, at Evan, sold by Evans' estate for 56,000 pounds at Sotheby's. However, McCartney tried very hard to gain ownership and curtail the public release of the trunk's contents. Sir Paul, or whoever he was, petitioned the High Court in England in 1996 and successfully prevented the sale of the original lyric sheets that Evans' ex-wife had tried to sell by claiming that the lyrics were collected by Evans as part of his duties and therefore belonged to the Beatles collectively. McCartney would continue to run interference on Mal Evans' information, especially the information about Mal's contributions to writing songs for the Beatles. In 2004, it was rumored that more of Evans' Beatles archives were discovered. This claim proved to be false. That, or they were found or replaced prior to authorities seeing them. We may never know exactly what Mal Evans knew, nor how much he played a role in the dark side of the world's biggest group. We can never be sure if his death was a tragic accident, suicide by cop, or something even more sinister, which is what it clearly was. What we do know is that this man who knew too much was cursed. Cursed by simplicity. Cursed by loyalty. Cursed by forces beyond his control. Had Mal Evans lived to finish his tell-all, what would we know about the Beatles, and especially about the person now known as Paul McCartney? We think the Mal Evans story deserves to be heard. Was he just a simple Forrest Gump-like character that bumbled his way through rock and roll's greatest moments, or the perfect patsy for a band that had become too powerful? Even though much of the information shared in that turntable talk there was, was absolutely true and very well documented, including those diary entries. We were just looking for some fun thing to do while we're together on the weekend. I, uh, usually our turntable talks are all fact. This one's just a goof. We, we kind of find, found it fascinating and a riveting story, and we kind of got bogged down in all the crazy conspiracy theories and true crime bullshit that's uh, out on the internet. So it, it took us about 24 hours, uh, a little bit of internet, and some Cuban sandwiches to uh, fuel us developing and writing this podcast. Uh, for what it's worth, Mal Evans' life and his story and his tragic ending are enough as what they are. He seemed like a genuinely sweet and loyal guy who loved the Beatles, and he allowed them to be who they were because he wasn't a leech or a bad influence. In his life, he, he made choices which had trade-offs. You know, he, he lived a tough life away from his family, but he also got to be there for some of the most amazing moments in rock history. Uh, he didn't make much money, but he did get to meet Elvis, his childhood hero. How many of us get to do that? All that was his choice, and in his life, 
you know, ended in a devastatingly sad and unnecessary way. But, you know, we just want to strip away all the curses and conspiracies and craziness um, and the fun that we had with, with this. And, and we just want to say the life lived by Mal Evans is, uh, is a, he makes him a human worthy of study. Absolutely. So I hope, I hope you guys enjoyed that. Yep. <clears throat> all right. Let's move on to our songs. first song today is a cover of a Bob Dylan song, and it's called Mama, You've Been On My Mind. This version is by Papa M. I'm going to go ahead and play it right now. Perhaps it's the color of the sun cut flat that I am covering. These crossroads I'm standing at Or maybe it's the weather Or something like that Mama, you are on my mind Even
Okay, that was Papa M with Dylan's Mama, You've Been On My Mind. Papa M is David Pajo from Slint, mostly. Uh, great, great guitarist. Um, I think he was even in he was even in a band with Billy Corgan. Uh, this single was put out on Awkward Silence Recordings in 2002. I love this song. I love, uh, as you've heard me say on, on other episodes, if you've listened to them, a lot of the songs I play are covers or seem to be covers. Uh, I I like covers. I think they're a lot of or can be a lot of fun based on how you do it. And I think he did a really wonderful version on this song. All right, uh, I'm going to keep the indie train rolling, and my song is called "Box Elder" by a band called Pavement. Elder by Pavement. It was originally found on Slay Tracks 1933 to 1969 that um, was released in 1989 way back then by on a label called Treble Kicker. Now you mostly find it on Westing by uh, Musket and Sextant on Drag City. It's the debut double EP of the future indie rock flag bearers and it was a fun noisy mess. Um, out of all the fall inspired lo-fi no- noise pop there's one clean, exceptionally clean sounding song. And Box Elder would emerge uh, as, a, uh, as a, a window into the future of what the band would become. Speaking of conspiracy theories, Joe and I have often speculated that David Berman, uh, pavement contributor and later mastermind of the Silver Jews, maybe had more of a hand in writing the song. 
That doesn't seem true. I think they were writing it before they were hanging out with David Berman. But it certainly sounds like it could be a Silver Juice song, but who knows. So, anyways, much of the lyrics are inspired from uh, Malcolmus and Spiral Staircase's experience in their hometown of Stockton, California. And uh, the irony of wanting to move to Montana for the greener pastures of, of uh, Montana. It's a fun song, a live concert favorite, and probably something most people have heard, but it's definitely worth hearing if you haven't. Uh, a couple fun facts. The Wedding Present covered Box Elder as a B-side to Brass Neck single, and that was before it had gotten big at all. Uh, pavement had gotten big at all. The, the bass player, Keith Gregory, picked up the barely distributed Slay tracks in America when he was visiting and brought it back, and the guys liked the song, which is by far the most accessible and poppy of Pavement's early songs. And um, they recorded it and released it, released it even before Slanted and Enchanted had come out. Um, and it got some airplay from uh, John Peel, DJ John Peel, who was a noted Wedo supporter. And there's one more interesting fact about the song. Uh, in the song, Malcolm says, I'm going to head to Box Elder M.O. M.O. is the postal code abbreviation for Missouri, and Box Elder is in Montana. Their postal code is M.T. So, yeah, check that out next time. I always, <clears throat> I always thought he was talking about Missouri, honestly. And I remember hearing, I heard the wedding present version before the pavement version. Oh, you did? And so I was actually confused when, because I didn't know for sure who wrote it. Because the wedding present didn't include the that information on that yeah. on that record for some reason, or I didn't see it. And so it was, it, was, it kind of baffled me for a while. Yeah, it's a Both of them song. are great for yeah. 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 yeah, My second song is a song called It's a Crime I Never Told You About the Diamonds in Your Eyes by another indie band, Blackheart Procession.
was Blackheart Procession with It's a Crime, I Never Told You About the Diamonds in Your Eyes. That came out on their second album, entitled Two, in 1999 on Chicago's Touch and Go Records. I don't have a lot to say about the song. I've always liked it since I heard them, uh, since I first heard it. They kind of have a weird Southern Gothic folk sound, but like Southern Gothic music played in with Eastern European roots or something. It's, it's a little bit hard to explain. This one has kind of a, a funeral dance party quality. It's kind of jaunty and gloomy and both emotive and very cold. So uh, just, just a great song. I don't know much about them. I saw them live and they were live playing a soundtrack for a short movie they'd made. And all I remember about them is they have all sorts of weird pianos and strange instruments on the stage they were just playing all sorts of crazy things it was a great show yeah cool they're cool sort of like if um william faulkner had grown up in warsaw yeah that would be black art procession they're really good uh, that song was a when it came out it became a staple on mixtapes for me for years Very great good. great great song. that's probably how i heard it i'm sure it did <laughs> okay my last song is not an indie rock song it is by the band labelle This song is called Wild Horses, and yes, it's another cover. And here you go. Suffer 
All right, that was Wild Horses, a Rolling Stones cover, if you think that they actually wrote it, by the band LaBelle featuring Patti LaBelle on their 1971 debut album, LaBelle, released on Warner Brothers Records. The song has some conspiracy theories around it as well. Did Graham Parsons write it? Did Keith Richards write it, basically? Uh, it's kind of a fun, fun thing. The Rolling Stones wrote it. I wish I could make claims that I knew that Graham Parsons wrote it, but because it sounds kind of like a song that he would have written and maybe he helped on it, I'm not sure. But it hasn't it's... stopped other people on the internet. Exactly. It That's may not right. Stop us. That's right. It may, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great song. I hope you guys like it. It's a just three minute pretty version of a pretty, pretty song. There's a Town Fans Ant cover of it as well that's also very nice. Um, and that was in, was it The Big Lebowski? What movie was it? I thought it was Dead Flowers. Oh, that was Dead Flowers. That's right. You're right. Okay. Thank you. Another great Rolling Stones yeah, song. Yeah, great Rolling Stones. Yeah, great cover. Good cover. There you go. Maybe I'll play that next time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Those are our songs. I, um, and I think what we're down to is audio trivia. Oh, no. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, okay. So, will you play them one more time for me? Absolutely. And for everybody out there, get your headphones on if you, if you are playing along at home. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to play these clips again. Five of them, pretty short. <clears throat> and all I need you to do is name the song that is being sampled. And I specifically want the one that I am looking for if there are multiple, which you don't necessarily know. But if you name a song that is being sampled in there that I am not listing, then that's great. And let us know. Okay, here we go. Clip one. Left my wallet in El Segundo. I gotta get it, I got got to get it. I left my wallet in El Segundo. Left my wallet in El Segundo. Left my wallet in El Segundo. I gotta get it. Two. Three. Story to tell you. Have you ever met a girl that you tried to date? But a year to make love, she wanted you to wait. Let me tell you a story in my situation. I was talking to this girl from the U.S. nation. Four. Come on. Five. Just like a paper tiger. Torn apart by All right, now what do you got? And yeah. if you want to, do you want to try for the the song that's being played and the band? That would be that would be great. Too. Um, yeah, I know a couple of those. Okay. Um, I don't know the first. I don't know who's doing the first song uh, that you played. The sample I think is "Past the Ducci by. You don't have to name that. Youth, I just uh, musical youth. Musical youth. Musical yeah. youth. One of my favorite song. songs yeah, ever. Really yep. Cool yep. Song. And the the song was uh, Tribe Called Quest with Left My Wallet and El Segundo. It was that was a different mix though. Okay. So. All right. Very cool. The second song, I don't, I don't have any clue. It's uh, what uh, N.W.A. or Easy? I think. It's N.W.A. with Gangsta Gangsta. And the song that's being sampled is William Devon's "Be Thankful for What You Got." The third song is definitely uh, Bismarcky, just friend. Mm-hmm. The sample is, gosh, I can't get anything. I, I thought it was something about Friends, too, but I don't know. Okay. It is Freddie Scott with You Got What I Need. Oh, gosh. I love that song. Oh, man. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I got the song, I guess. All right. The fourth song, I don't know uh, what song is playing, but the cowbell sounds like Honky Tonk Woman. It is. Yep, yep. The song is uh, Tone Loke with Funky Cold Medina. Oh, okay. Fun song. Oh, I, I should have probably got that. Yep. 
Uh, the last song is Paper Tiger by Beck. And I think it might be Melody Nelson by Serge Gainsbourg. Right album. Um, it's hard to remember the titles. Cold. Cargo Cult. That's it. Yeah. Absolutely. Good yeah. job. You Excellent you, work. You told me after I wasn't getting it, I would get that. And, and you were right. I finally yeah. figured yeah. it out and I wrote it down. So that was a hard quiz. But it was really a really hard fun. one, but yeah. it's kind of fun to know what songs are being sampled, how things are being used. I think it's that could be a turntable talk too, just how people have used samples in music. It's so much fun and often incredibly inventive, often not. Right. But and sometimes it's derivative. But a yeah. lot of times, like with these specific bands, I love what they did with them. Yeah, they're all fun songs um, and great songs to cover too, or sample. All right, well, uh, thank you for uh, sticking with us through another episode of the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast. Thank you for uh, um, um, hearing us with us trying kind of a different format. Joe and I had a ton of fun writing and recording this. So, like I said, we did it all in about twenty-four hours. So it was, it was a lot of fun. It was a great story. And it was kind of a different way for us to kind of tell a story that should be told, but I think it would be just a little dry if we just told it straight. So. Yeah, yeah. And you may have commented that some of these other ones have been dry too, but I hope not. Uh, this, <laughs> this one was a lot of fun. And, and yeah, it, it was very quickly put together. Usually we take a couple weeks to put each one together as far as research and going back and forth with each other about how it looks. But thank you for sticking with it this far. Please, if you can, go to iTunes, leave us some feedback. Uh, go to Facebook and tell us what you like and don't like so we can we can converse with you, really. And Twitter as well. Follow us on Twitter. Email us if you want to. Uh, HighwayHiFiPodcast at gmail.com. Tell us if there's a topic you want us to cover or if there's a topic you want to cover. And uh, we, can, we can maybe even set something up. Or if there's songs you want to hear. Absolutely. And uh, don't forget to go out and buy some great music. Go to a live show. Do something to support the music industry, especially the vinyl record industry. Uh, they need your help. And as always, have a wonderful uh, few weeks, and we'll talk to you in a couple weeks. The end. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.